All right, team, fall in. It's Coach Lucas Livingston here, and it's time for part two of the Ancient Olympics on the Ancient Art Podcast. Last time, we found out about the historical and mythological foundation of the Ancient Olympics, heard a bit about the 12 labors of Hercules, and the tragic family line of Pelops and Hippodamea, also called the House of Atreus. We wrapped up with a teaser about funerary celebrations going hand-in-hand with ancient athletics. This time, we'll continue to explore the idea of a tragic, untimely demise as a good reason to hold an athletic contest. We'll take a close look at some very early Greek artwork dated to about the time of the foundation of the Olympic Games, which may suggest chariot racing. And then we'll try to get a grip, so to speak, on the whole idea of nudity in the ancient games. So stand up, put on your beer hats, and paint your faces, because it's game on. Funeral games are a big deal in ancient Greek stories and history. Many of the foundation myths of the more famous Greek games are centered around honoring some tragic death. The Pythian games at Delphi are said to have begun to pay honor to the nymph Daphne, who was transformed into a laurel tree to escape the amorous clutches of the god Apollo. This famous story has been captured a lot by artists and authors throughout the centuries. Most notable, perhaps, are the passage from Ovid's Metamorphoses, a collection of tales involving various physical transformations, and this magnificent marble masterpiece in Rome by the Baroque sculptor Bernini. And since Daphne transformed into a laurel tree, that's why victors at the Pythian Games were crowned with a wreath of laurel. The ancient games at Nemea were held in honor of the death of an infant boy, Opheltes, who was bitten by a snake while lying on a bed of celery. Hence, victors at the Nemean games were crowned with a wreath of wild celery. And the Isthmian games were established as funeral games for another infant boy, Melikertes, also called Palaemon, who died clutched in his mother's arms as she threw herself from a high cliff into the unforgiving sea to escape her wrathful husband driven mad by the gods. The boy's body was brought ashore by dolphins to a pine grove at Isthmia, sacred to the god Poseidon, hence a crown of pine for those victors. You see where we're going here? These four games, the Olympian, the Pythian, the Nemean, and the Isthmian, are called the Crown Games, because the victors were all awarded with crowns instead of money. We also have the Money Games, which are found throughout the entire Greek world, sometimes just local and sometimes huge and rivaling the scale of the Crown Games, like the Grand Panathenea at Athens. Funeral games feature prominently in literature, too. Towards the end of the Iliad, in Book 23, we see Achilles organizing funeral games to honor the heroic death and memory of his young sidekick, Patroclus. The Iliad's a fascinating archaeological artifact. Though the date of the composition is hotly debated, it's generally considered to be in the 8th century BC, plus or minus a century. For generations, it was passed down not through manuscripts, but by oral tradition, by memorization and recitation for performance. It crystallized sometime in the 7th or 6th century BC into the form that's come down to us today. The poem looks back to the mythological heroes of the Bronze Age civilization from around 1600 to 1100 BC, but it shows clear and obvious examples of the Iron Age culture, contemporary to that Homer fellow, if he ever even existed, but I digress. The value of the Iliad to Greek athletics lies in the thorough description of the different events at the funeral games of 
Patroclus. Two events that receive a lot of attention in the Iliad are the chariot race and the foot race. Here's a great translation by Stephen Miller, author of Ancient Greek Athletics, although I paraphrase in part to keep a PG rating. Ajax was in front, but Odysseus was running so close behind that his feet were hitting Ajax's tracks before the dust could settle back in, and his breath was hitting the back of Ajax's neck. All the Achaeans were cheering his effort to win, shouting for him to pour it on. But when they were in the stretch, Odysseus said a silent prayer to the gray-eyed Athena. Hear me, goddess, be kind to me, and come with extra strength for my feet. So he prayed, and Pallas Athena heard him, and lightened his limbs, feet, and arms, too. As they were making their final spring for the prize, Ajax slipped and fell. Athena tripped him, where dung was scattered on the ground from bellowing oxen, and he got the stuff in his mouth and up his nose. So Odysseus took away the mixing bowl because he finished first, and the ox went to Ajax. He stood with his hands on the horns of the ox, spitting out the dung, and said to the Argives, Oh crap, that goddess tripped me, that goddess who's always stood by Odysseus and cared for him like a mother. The popularity of these athletic events can also be seen in the artwork contemporary to the composition of the Homeric epics and the foundation of the Olympics, like on this geometric period Pyxis at the Art Institute of Chicago from around 760 to 735 BC, with a team of four neatly assembled horses decorating the lid. We can imagine the chariot that was attached to this four-horse quadriga, or in the Greek, the tetrapon, and also on this giant geometric period crater, or a mixing bowl, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art from around 750 to 735 BC. On it, you can see a body lying in state, with mourners assembled all around. And on the lower register, alternating depictions of charioteers and soldiers race along. Note that this vessel comes from nearly 400 years after the Bronze Age, but the figures on foot carry the trademark Bronze Age-style figure-eight shields from centuries earlier. So, just as rhapsodes singing the Iliad and Odyssey are looking back to the mythic heroes of Mycenae, so too are the artists of this time as they decorate the geometric-style vases. Charioteers and runners continue to be the favorite athletic subjects of Greek vase painting throughout the classical and Hellenistic periods. Athletic events at the Greek games can be broken up into two basic categories, the Gymnokos Agon and Hippokos Agon. Agon basically means a game contest or an athletic event. It's the Greek word from which we get agony. Agony, in its most basic sense, is the strife, struggle, and sacrifice endured in pursuit of victory. Gumnikos means nude, so the Gumnikos Agon are the nude games, whereas the Hippokos Agon refer to the horse games, which include a few different mounted and horse-drawn races. Considering the popularity of chariot races, though, it's kind of ironic that they didn't become an official part of the Olympics until 680 BC, a good century after the supposed foundation of the Olympics, and after the incorporation of nearly all the nude events. So what's the deal with all the nudity? Nudity in ancient Greek athletics is perhaps the most quintessentially Greek aspect to the games. It's the equalizer of men. Competing in the nude, no one could argue that the latest Adidas nanotechnology swimsuit gave anyone a leg up on the competition. Nudity preserved the essential democratic nature of Greek athletics. It also prevented preference or prejudice based on social class. All discriminating demarcations were stripped from the competitors who must rely on their skill and strength alone. We're all the same when stripped down to our bareness, romping in the dirt, oil, and sweat. We're all Greek citizens. 
Nobody knows for sure when or how the idea of competing in the nude came about. Various ancient sources provide us with amusing accounts of loincloths falling off mid-race, only to learn that nudity supposedly provided a possible competitive edge. One common association of the nude athlete is with the ancient mythic hero. You might remember back in episode 6 on the classical white ground Lakethos, the oil jar, we learned that the nude figure here presents an interesting duality of the youthful nude athlete and the epic hero. We also saw this more recently in episode 16 on the Metropolitan Kouros. Perhaps this noble association was also aspired to by athletes in the nude on the field at ancient Olympia. And it makes extra sense to have the nude epic hero depicted on the Lakithos, because that's one sort of jar that athletes in the gymnasium would have used to dispense oil. There are a few different interpretations for the use of oil in Greek athletics. Rubbing olive oil into your skin before a competition would give your body a lovely glistening sheen. We can attest to this from WWF circa 1985. There could also be some sort of ritual libation significance to rubbing oil all over one's body. What might make the most sense, though, is the cleansing purpose of oil after a match. After accumulating all the sweat, dirt, sand, blood, and other filth of the match, you'd run a strigil down your limbs, and all the oil acted like a nice lubricant so the grime had a harder time sticking to your skin. We looked a little more closely back in episode 6 at this example of a strigil from the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. That's about all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next time for part three on the Ancient Olympics as we tour the variety of athletic events, both the nude games and the horse races. Questions, comments, suggestions? You can email me at info at ancientartpodcast.org or visit the website and click on feedback at the top of the page. While you're there, please take a minute and fill out the survey to help me get a better sense of who's listening. iTunes reviews help get the podcast noticed, so please consider sharing the love. You can also add your comments next to each episode at ancientartpodcast.org. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next time on the Ancient Art Podcast.